day wherever you're listening from, and welcome to Indoor Air Quality Radio, IAQ Radio, for Friday, May 2nd, 2014. This week, episode 325 comes to you from Studio D. We're in Central City, Pennsylvania after a long week on the road. Back at the controls with me is Jessica Lawson. Hello, everyone. Good day, Jess. Back in Studio C in McKee's Rocks is the Z-Man, Cliff Zlotnick. It's, it's a great spring day. Welcome, everybody. Good day, Cliff. And joining us for the roundup will be our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Weil. Today's segments include, we're going to do an interview on VOCs and product emissions with Dr. Stephanie Mason. Looking forward to that and want to thank her for joining us on our vacation. Uh, we'll have our halftime, of course, and then we'll come back with our roundup with Dr. Weil. Before we get started, let's thank our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at johndon, J-O-N-D-O-N, dot com. Indoor Environment Connections, the newspaper for the IAQ industry. Subscriptions and advertising information are available at ieconnections.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at clean c-l-e-a-n-f-a-x.com and cmmonline.com please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of ieq radio when you inquire about their services and products all right just got back from john don in tampa great folks down there help out uh, you know anytime you you need help with uh, your cleaning disaster restoration needs the john don folks are great let's get it over to the z-man for today's iaq radio trivia question Thanks, Joe. Win a cool prize by outcompeting fellow IAQ radio listeners and being the first person to correctly answer the IAQ radio trivia question each week. Submitting your answer is very easy. Either email it to cslotnick at cs.com, or if you're listening to the show live, you can text in your answer via your computer. Congratulations. To Derek Johnson from Carolina Coastal University for answering last week's two-part trivia question. William Shakespeare first coined the term spotless reputation and it was first used in Richard II. The IQ Radio Trivia Question for Friday, May 2nd, 2014 has been sponsored by Trisca, the Tri-State Restores and Specialty Cleaners Association, who have been serving the needs of and advocating for their members for over 30 years. Remember, Trisca is your link to industry training, certification, standards, and events. Their website is www.trsca.org. Now for this week's trivia question. According to the Environmental Protection Agency, what accounts for the largest source of VOC emissions nationwide? Back to you, Joe. All right. 
Excuse me. Thank you, Cliff. Uh, don't forget also, folks, to visit that IAQ Training Institute website at iaqtraining.com for the most current dates for the training you trust. We will be in Greenville, not next week, the week after, with the indoor environmentalist. And actually, I think I got a mold supervisor down there at the same time. So um, stop in, check us out, and say hello if you're in the Greenville area. We'll be at the uh, Buck Mickle Technical Center of Greenville. Uh, technical College. Great folks. Anyway, let's move it over to our guest today. We've brought uh, Dr. Stephanie Mason. Dr. Mason is the Vice President of VOC's Material Testing at Eurofins Scientific, and she is responsible for promotion and demonstration of expertise in chamber testing, product emissions, product organic t content testing, and indoor air quality. She has extensive uh, experience directly related with product emissions testing, product content testing for both U.S. and international regulatory compliance, certifications, and other testing strategies. She is well-versed on existing indoor air quality and product chemical safety regulations and methodologies and is very knowledgeable regarding the manufacturing process of building materials including furniture, insulation, laminate, paint, wallboard. You know, it's interesting how many things have VOCs in them when you think about it. What their different uses are, the potential uh, content, health and environmental hazards, etc. Her BS in geology is from the University of Illinois at Urbana, and her master's in material science and engineering is from uh, Penn, University of Pennsylvania, and her PhD is in earth and environmental sciences from Columbia, and, you know, I met Dr. Mason at the IAQA conference along with uh, Charlene Bear. Had a very nice time talking to her and really happy to see she's going to join us on the show. We've got a little music for her. If you visit American City, you will find it very pretty. Just two things of which you must beware. Don't drink the water and don't breathe the air. Pollution, pollution, they got smog and sewage and mud. Turn on your tap and get hot and cold running crud. <laughs> Cliff, you always come up with some classics there. Hello, Dr. Mason, do we have you on the line? Yes, you do. Hello. Good uh, morning, afternoon. I guess it depends on where you are. Right. Yeah, actually, we're we're all morning here, but although we do go worldwide, so you're right. It could be night, morning, whatever. We uh we have some people from Australia, from England, all over the world that listen in. Anyway, um, when we met, you had told me the answer to this first question I want to ask you, but I can't remember what it was, and I, I've been on the road all week, and I didn't get to look around. Eurofins Scientific is not – I don't think that's where you started out. Wasn't it a different company, and maybe they got purchased by Eurofins or something like that? Uh, yes. Yeah, so um, <clears throat> I started out at um, <clears throat> Air Quality Sciences in Atlanta, Georgia, and I was there for almost 10 years, and then I recently moved to California to work with a company – uh, formerly known as just Air Toxics, and it was purchased by Eurofins uh, approximately two years ago. So they're now Eurofins Air Toxics, Inc. And Eurofins Scientific is the parent company uh, that is essentially a network of laboratories um, specializing in product testing, uh, nutraceutical testing, pharmaceutical testing, life science testing, just a series of test labs. Okay, we've had a couple people from Air Quality Science on in the past. Was it was Elliot Horner also there, or was that different? Uh, 
David Horner was there. Okay. Um, he's the uh, he's our resident uh, mold expert. <laughs> okay, okay, Elliot. We had him on, and then we had one of the one of the other principals on. Was that Marilyn Black's group too? Yes. Doctor Black. That was the other one we had on. Okay, Cliff. Let me turn it over to you. Okay. Well, Doctor, thank you very much for joining us. Uh, I'd like to just start with a definition, if you can provide one, of what is a VOC. Okay. So a VOC is, that stands for volatile organic compound or chemical. And so if we definition of an organic uh, chemical is one that contains carbon, with the exception of carbon dioxide and carbon monoxide, organic compounds are carbon-containing compounds. Okay. Um, the volatile component means that at room temperature, typically 23 degrees C, 25 degrees C, the chemical will be um, in the vapor phase. Um, so, for example, and if this is not boiling because sometimes you'll hear uh, volatile organic compound referred to in terms of a boiling point of the compound. So something like water, which is not a VOC, but it's a good example. Water doesn't boil until it's, uh, you know, 100 degrees C or 212 degrees Fahrenheit. But if you were to just leave a glass of water out in a room, right. over time you'd notice that the level of the water went down, and that's because it evaporated into the air. Okay, so you don't need to be at elevated temperature, per se, for a volatile organic compound to go into the gas phase. And what that makes sense? It, it, sure. it, it, it does. It does. It really what does. about a product such as mothballs or something like that, which, uh, which sublimates from a solid to a gas? Would that also be a, a VOC or not? The... Yes, so the, uh, so the chemicals that go from the solid to the gas phase are VOC, would be VOCs. So okay. they're, they're stable in the gas phase um, at the, you know, whatever standard conditions are outside. And when these VOCs come off of a, a, a compound, um, is it, just a part of the compound that, that's released into the air, so it's like a subpart of the total compound, or how can you kind of straight and, and how much of it? I mean, you know, it doesn't all get volatile, right? So just a part of it becomes volatile, and I guess in some cases that's part of the drying process for, say, for instance, a, a glue or something like that. Have I got that kind of right? Uh, yes, uh, kind of right. So <laughs> products are made up of many chemicals. So not all of the chemicals that are in a product are volatile. And not all chemicals are equally volatile. For some, it's easier for them to go into the gas phase than for others, and that's a function of the vapor pressure. Um, so what will happen is if there's, let's say, no, um, none of the volatile chemical that's in your air, Surrounding it, the chemical wants to go from the higher concentration to the lower concentration. So there'll be a, a process, a diffusive process, typically, to go from inside the material to outside. 
and that's driven by this concentration difference because it's higher in the material. So that's the diffusion process. For the wet products like glues and, and paints, there's an evaporative process as well. So as the product cures or dries, the volatile organic, organic compounds are released into the air. Okay, and then I, now I hear this this term semi-volatile, and I just, you know, we like to kind of get the basics straight up front. What's the difference between a volatile and a semi-volatile? So a semi-volatile compound has an even higher boiling point or lower vapor pressure, which means over much longer periods of time, you will see some of the compound move from the solid liquid phase into the gas phase. Okay. But it's much more difficult. So it's, a, it's a, typically a heavier compound that doesn't want to be in the air as readily as some of the lighter compounds, but it, will, it can still happen, as opposed to a non-volatile compound, which there's no driver for it. And how conditions. High-volatile compounds, if when there's elevated temperature, that's when you're more likely to see them uh, in the air. And when they are in the air, they're often uh, um, associated with particles. They like to be attached to particles when, they, when they're in the air. Okay. So most of your semi-volatile compounds in the vapor phase are going to be associated with, with particles. Because even once they get in the gas phase, they still want to adhere to uh, something more solid. Okay. Now, let me ask this, because you kind of anticipated my follow-up, but I want to go a step further. How does um, relative humidity affect the volatility, if I got that right, of some of these VOCs and semi-VOCs? Or, I'm sorry. Uh, uh, okay, go ahead. I'm sorry. No, no, no problem. Um, typically, a higher humidity... Um, results in a higher VOC concentration in the air, but not necessarily. There are, for every chemical, there are thermodynamic properties okay. <laughs> that indicate um, the effect of change in humidity on the ability to go into the vapor phase. And for some chemicals, they're actually reactive with water. So the whole... Um, process is, is thereby changed just by having uh, elevated uh, levels of water, per se. I see. So it, it varies by the, the compound. How many, how many, just to get a ballpark idea, how many of these volatile organic compounds are we talking about in building products? I mean, hundreds, thousands, tens of thousands, you know? Let's see. Uh, there, are, there are thousands of different VOCs okay. out there, and there are New VOCs, you know, I'm not going to say every day, but um, continually there's an increase in the number of VOCs as, you know, chemistry evolves. Um, but typically inside a, a building, it's not unusual to see tens or hundreds of VOCs uh, because you don't have all the VOCs that are in existence, okay. <laughs> per se, in any one location. But there are thousands and thousands of VOCs. Thousands and thousands. How do you keep up with all that? I mean, it's got to be a, a challenge because they're developing new ones all the time. I guess 
that's part of the job is trying to keep up with what new ones are coming out and what they're adding to different products. Do you have contacts within the construction industry? I assume they ask you to test these things from time to time or, or pretty regularly. Yes, so we, we test and well, I'm not going to get into all the, the, the politics on uh, regulations of chemicals because that's, that's another uh, entire show. Um, <laughs> okay. <laughs> not all chemicals are, are registered. There is something called the, the NIST library that we use, which is uh, has cataloged the, the spectra of many, many uh, chemicals so that we can use that for reference to identify compounds when we do our testing. But it's not unusual to have, to see compounds that we just cannot identify. And what did you call it? NIST? Was that N-I-S-T or? That's the National Institute of Standards and Testing. I guess that was, used to be the National Bureau of Standards a long time ago. Gotcha. Gotcha. We just have the acronym police run across here every once in a while and make us stop and figure out what the acronym was. Cliff, let me turn it back over to you for a minute. Okay. Uh, Doctor, can you tell us, are VOCs born, which, you know, do they occur on their own or are they made, uh, are they created synthetically or both? It is both. Okay. There are, there are naturally occurring VOCs as well as man-made VOCs. And there are some VOCs that occur both ways. For example, formaldehyde is naturally occurring. Um, it's part of, you know, trees, us, but it can be also created in a laboratory and used in manufacturing and therefore come out of, um, you know, products, manufactured products as well. So it has different sources. I, I guess a follow-up question to that, and I think that you probably covered it, but I think I want to go over it again. Are VOCs only found in air, or can they be present in liquids and solids, et cetera? They can be present in liquid and solids as well. Uh, VOCs just means that it has the potential to be in the gas phase. Oh, okay. Yeah. It just has the potential. I got you. Okay. All right. And then I guess the other thing that, you know, Cliff had put some questions together, and I want to ask one of these, because sometimes it seems like it, there's an obvious answer, but let's ask it anyway and find out if you feel the same way. Are all VOCs bad or are some beneficial? Oh, no, no. Uh, yeah, no, some are beneficial. Uh, you, you wouldn't classify an entire category of chemicals as all. I mean, this is a very broad category. It includes all types of chemicals that are volatile and organic. So, no, there are definitely good chemicals as well as bad chemicals. Well, let, me, let me clarify. You couldn't live without VOCs. You couldn't. That's, that's my You wouldn't point. really exist without them. What, in Why? What, yeah, exactly. In what way do we need, other than the products around us and things like that, is there some need for VOCs within our respiration or within our, you know, our function, our bodily functions? It's, it's just part of the natural environment. Okay. Um it's uh you know uh i'm trying to think so there's i know we create you know, alcohol can be vocs they naturally occur um aldehydes there's a whole 
classes of chemicals in which you know some of the compounds are are volatile. Um, it's it's just the basic building blocks of of our world. Of our whole world, yeah. And then I would imagine too, we we create VOCs as a part of our you know our metabolism. We create VOCs is that, and so does every other living organism, as I understand it, or at least most of them. Yep, that's correct. Absolutely correct. Okay, good. So we've got the basics down now. With respect to the company you're working with now, Eurofins Scientific, which is, I guess, the parent company of the other ones that you mentioned here, what what exactly is their, I mean, I know they have laboratories all over the world, but what is kind of their specialty? Um, so, <laughs> scientific, their specialty is um, life science testing, you know, being a world-class testing organization, um, but our specific location at uh, Eurofins Air Toxics, our specialty is measuring uh, VOCs in air, air measurements. That's uh, That was the basis for its founding, and they've been doing that for 25-plus years now, or yeah, 25 years now. So our location in uh, Folsom, California, Eurofins Air Toxics, is focused on VOC testing and originally in air and now we're adding capabilities for looking at VOCs that also emit from, you know, products. And they've done some testing like that before, but we're expanding that. I see. Okay. So if somebody's doing some, like, let's take our indoor air quality people out here. They, they go and they take a, um, a, a test for VOCs and then we send it to uh, the air toxics group there for for analysis. They send back the analysis. That's kind of the you know the way things got started. And now you're doing more product emission testing, and I would assume you have some chambers for that and so on. That is correct. All right, yeah. good. good. Cliff, um, I, I guess we suppose that some people are sensitive to VOCs. Uh, what sort of symptoms? are most common for people that are sensitive to manifest? Okay. So now we're, I guess you're looking at specifically uh, maybe shorter-term um, effects, such as eye irritation or respiratory irritation. Um, could be, you know, just skin irritation, feeling irritated, uh, difficulty breathing. Uh but it was, and you know, things not smelling good, you know, making you feel nauseous per se because of that. But that's very uh, person specific. <laughs> um, so if you look at something like odor thresholds or uh, sensory irritant thresholds, there's a wide range <laughs> because not everybody uh, is affected equally. Now there are other compounds that are more, let's say, toxic that can potentially cause cancer or lead to, uh, let's say, neurological damage. Um, just These are just ex examples. And, and that's more of a longer-term effect, which people might not even realize is, is happening. Can you name a couple of those for our audience? Uh, the longer-term effects? Yeah, the ones that cause cancer or lead to neurological effects. Uh, let's see. Some uh, so uh, benzene is a carcinogen. Um, uh, let's see. Well, 
formaldehyde has recently been listed as a carcinogen. The uh, toluene is a reproductive toxin. I'm trying to come up with my list here. Um, uh, for some reason, I'm drawing a blank. I guess I don't like to think about it. Um. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Well, I'm sure um, it goes on and on. I mean, but I guess the, the yeah. near term thing is that that you'll see things like um, a headache and and eye irritation and um, have you ever seen and I'm curious because I have a particular project I'm working on that I'm going to ask you more about later would it could they potentially affect someone's voice so you know cause maybe like almost laryngitis like symptoms I wouldn't rule it out <laughs> okay but I mean, I would, yeah. I mean, if it thinks the larynx, then yeah, it's potentially that could happen. I mean, I realize we're asking a really difficult question because there's thousands of these VOCs out there, and I'm sure there's you know many, many different ways they affect people. So I'm just trying to kind of give folks a, an idea of some of the potential issues because you know oftentimes we'll get into a building and we'll all we'll have is some vague symptoms and then we've got to try and figure out based on those vague symptoms and a good evaluation of the building what what potential issues there are and and i think sometimes dealing with the the symptoms from voc exposure can be really difficult for people um what about like respiratory tract issues, um, things along those lines. Uh, w would you ever see, for instance, from VOCs actually causing, um, oh, like, um, like, like the common cold, not cold I understand is not, but like cold-like symptoms or flu-like symptoms? It's potential that you could have the, the respiratory uh, irritation-type symptoms that you might, that might be associated with a cold or a flu. Um Again, uh, you know, there's so many VOCs out there and, you know, people at different levels of sensitivity that, you know, I, I, I don't, I would not be able to point to any specific chemicals um, without knowing a lot more about um, the given situation. Sure. Now, what are, are and I'm, I'm sure some people are more sensitive than others to VOCs. I think we all know that. Do you have any idea? Is there any research that indicates maybe why that happens? Um, there may be research on it. That is not my area of expertise, and I don't think I'd be uh, comfortable uh, providing an answer on that Understood. one at all. <laughs> Understood. Well, Cliff's got another question here, and I think I really like this. What types of Household products, or well, let's start with cleaning chemicals. Um, what types emit the highest levels of VOCs from your experience? The highest levels of VOCs with things like degreasers. Okay. Um, tend to have higher levels. Um, but even your just your uh, basic, uh, you know lemon or pine type cleaners. Uh, the uh, lemon and pine scent comes from chemicals called terpenes, uh, limonene for lemon and pinene for the pine. And uh, those are VOCs and they can be irritants. And if you use a lemon cleaner or, you know, one of those lemon or pine cleaners and you have an air cleaner in your house that generates ozone, 
the ozone and the terpenes, the pine and limonene, can react and create formaldehyde. So, so there's a lot of uh, different possibilities there. But cleaning products, because they're used frequently, tend to be uh, a more common source of VOCs uh, in a building on just a regular basis. And, and I would imagine these air fresheners emit a lot of VOCs. I mean, that's kind of the point, right, is to um, off-gas so that people get a pleasant odor or whatever the case may be. Yes, and uh, so air fresheners would not be recommended. Okay. <laughs> but, uh, and I may make the room smell better, but that doesn't mean it's improving the indoor air quality. Uh, to, generally, it's not improving indoor air quality, but uh, making it uh, worse most part. So just because the, the air smells good doesn't mean that you have good indoor air quality and it's not potentially harmful and vice versa. Just because the, the air may smell bad doesn't mean that it's necessarily harming you. You know, you kind of anticipate my next one. Go either. Go ahead, I'm sorry. sorry? Well, my, that was kind of my next question. Does How closely related is the odor and the emission of VOCs? I mean, the stronger the odor, the more VOCs are being emitted, or is that just, you know, not necessarily true? That's not necessarily true. Um, for some chemicals, it doesn't take very much, uh, very high concentration of the chemical in the air for it to be noticed. Um as an odorant, uh, for example, something like uh, hydrogen sulfide, again, not necessarily VOC, but a low odor threshold, you have very low concentrations and you smell it. Um, so, no, there's no direct correlation between odor and level, level of VOCs. Let me take it a step further. Um, if I have the same VOC, well, this kind of makes sense. If I have... I'm not comparing one VOC to another, but I'm looking at the same VOC. I, I would, I'm kind of guessing, but maybe I'm wrong. The stronger the odor, the more emission you're getting. Or is that not necessarily um, the case? Probably on just a first pass. If you have the same chemicals, yes, a higher um, or a stronger smell. Uh, assuming it's the same person who's doing the comparison, um, a stronger odor is most likely indicative that you do have a higher concentration of the same okay. chemical. But that assumes that all other factors are the same. Right. Temperature, relative humidity, the amount of air going through the building. <laughs> the person doing the smelling, all that stuff, yeah. yeah. And then uh, there's the other variable, which is really difficult, and that's, how long the person's been doing the smelling has been exposed to that VOC because as they, you know, the longer they're exposed to it, the less they they pick it up, essentially. Yes, that's typically the case. And then there are also gender differences, um, age differences, uh, women, and again, I'm just, this is just generalizations based on research. It's not necessarily true for every single person, but uh, women tend to have a better sense of smell and your sense of smell uh, decreases as you as you age. So, like I said, these are just generalizations, but um, for the vast majority, they tend to be true. All right. Well, let's let's take a break here. We're we're going to go to our halftime, and then when we come back, I want to get into some specifics about different 
furnishings and building products that, that emit these VOCs and, and a little bit about how we measure them and analyze them, etc. This is Radio Joe Hughes saying that uh, we'll be right back after about 90 seconds with our guest, Dr. Stephanie Mason. We're having an interesting discussion on VOCs. We've talked VOCs before, but, you know, it's kind of interesting to get different perspectives on it and then, you know, take a little different slant on how we uh, discuss the issue. So we'll be back in 90 seconds with Dr. Mason, talk a little bit more about VOCs, and then we'll go to our roundup and bring in another interesting doctor, Dr. Dietrich. Wow. Thanks to our association sponsors, the Indoor Air Quality Association, IAQA, a nonprofit multidisciplinary organization dedicated to promoting the exchange of indoor environmental information through education and research. Visit them at www.iaqa.org. And thanks to our advertisers, Gray Wolf Sensing Solutions, who use advanced sensor software technology and embedded computers to provide superior environmental test instrumentation. Visit them at wolfsense.com. Legends Environmental Insurance Services, the experts in insurance for environmental consultants and contractors for over 20 years. Learn about them at legends-enviro.com. And, of course, our marquee sponsors. John Don Products, where restoration and abatement contractors shop. Visit them at www.johndon.com. Clean Facts and Cleaning and Maintenance Management Magazine, your source for cleaning and maintenance news. Visit them at cleancleanfax.com and cmmonline.com. Please be sure to thank our sponsors for their support of IEQ Radio when you inquire about their services and products. All right, we're back with the second half of our interview with Dr. Stephanie Mason. We're talking VOCs today. Very interesting. I was just talking to Jess on the break, and uh, she's learning some things here today, too. So, you know, it's uh, every time I talk about this subject, I, I learn more, and I, I really appreciate you coming on and helping us with this. I want to move over a little bit to um, more on furnishings and, and things like um, desks and, and bookcases and, you know, um, carpet and so on and so forth. Out of these products, it seems to me, Dr. Mason, the one that has gotten the most attention over the years has been carpet. Um, and, and can you tell us a little bit, I mean, first of all, is that accurate? And, and can you tell us maybe why, if it is accurate? Okay. Um, yeah, so <laughs> carpet was probably one of the first products to have an assessment of the VOCs that emit from it. So, yes, yeah, so we've been talking about carpet VOCs for probably longer than most other products. And one of the reasons was they, uh, they, uh, we did a, an EPA building. And, you know, the refurbish, uh, <clears throat> put in new carpet, you know, paints. And after they changed the finishings out, the 
people in the building started complaining and getting sick and uh, you know, not showing up to work. So here it is, the EPA with the problem building. Yeah. <laughs> and <laughs> That'll get eventually it, it, was a, it was a carpet that was identified as, as the culprit, um, compound called 4-phenocyclohexene. And while it's not necessarily something that's going to you know, be harmful in the long run, it, the odor um, can be very noxious as that new carpet smell. And in high enough concentrations, it can make you, you know, not feel well. So a lot, many years ago, <laughs> the uh, carpet industry decided to uh, take a lead on this and get the problem under control. So they started with uh, this, the carpet and rug industry created their green label program for measuring uh, VOCs out, out of carpet because they wanted to, to avoid this problem. It's not very good for PR, and it's not very good for the people using carpet as well. So in the interest of uh, protecting their industry and the people using uh, their products, uh, they came up with a program to uh, monitor the VOCs uh, from their carpet, from their products. Now, I want Cliff to follow up on this because he's been you know, dealing with carpet forever. But before he does, I, I got a, a quick follow-up. Did they... <laughs> completely remove that product or reduce it or reformulate it in a way that it would be less volatile or, and are all, you know, is that possible, I guess? Yeah. I, you do not see for PC or for phenylcyclohexane uh, very often anymore. So it was over the years, uh, the carpet industry has, Chase some of the materials that they used and some of the processes that they used to create some of, of the products, uh, some of the components of, of the carpet. So they've tried to engineer it out of their, their products. Not to say that it doesn't show up from time to time, but they have done work on re-engineering uh, the chemistry, the manufacturing of, of the products. And is that the one that's still part of the, that's part of the lead IAQ testing today? Um, it was. I think if you look at the new lead uh, version four that just came out, uh, there's no longer a reference to four PC okay. uh, testing for their in their quality assessment. It's uh, at this point, it's probably more a legacy uh, legacy concern. Okay. And now, um, what was that? What was that product there for? Was it the you know something that was um, added intentionally or the byproduct of some other, you know, component of the carpet, or if you don't know, I understand, certainly. No, it wasn't added intentionally. It was just a reaction byproduct from uh, the materials that were used. Uh, I'd have to do a little refresher to, to remember the exact uh, <laughs> chemical equations, but no, it wasn't that it was purposely added and that's pretty common i assume it's some other there's other, some other part of the process of putting together a piece of furniture that um inadvertently allows for the release of these volatiles i don't think they're necessarily adding them unless you know that's there's some well let, i guess let me answer have you answer that first um sometimes they're intentionally added and often it's because it has favorable, uh, leads to favorable properties uh, for the uh, for the material, the product in question, uh, and 
there was it wasn't added to intentionally harm anyone <laughs> in the end. It was to create a better product um, and, you know, often one that was yeah, cost-effective. And I'm sure... So there was that were intentionally added, like some of the solvent chemicals, and then there are others that are, that are byproducts. So it's a combination of both. Um, and there have been a lot of changes in the last, let's say, 20 years in the emissions that you see from uh, from products. So, you know, over the years, uh, you know, we have all learned more about chemical emissions from products. Uh, there have been changes in, uh, in in the emissions that you do see. Okay. Cliff, let me so tell we're you. not where we were 20 years ago. And I assume you, by saying that, you, you feel we're better. Well, we're, we're better with respect to the chemicals that we know about. Yeah, yeah. Um, what a catch twenty two, huh? <laughs> yeah, we're always learning more, so um it, it's hard to say at one point, you know, formaldehyde was used as, you know, as a cleaning agent, right? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Very effective and then <laughs> over the years they learned, oh maybe we shouldn't do that. So it's hard to say that that's not gonna happen again. Um so I'm not going to say that it's definitely better or you know good or safe, but it's we're moving in the right direction and as far as addressing the known issues and, and we're we have made a lot of pro- progress. And we are looking at it. We are doing this type type of testing and there are the programs that you've mentioned that are that are at least trying to do something. Let, let's turn it over to Cliff. I'm sure he's got a follow up on that. Well actually I, I was thinking you know, I was just sitting here thinking about you know, most people, I think there have been carpet studies done that the average carpet lasts uh, seven years. And if we think about it, you know, very few people buy a new car and drive that car for seven years. I'm wondering whether you've had any experience with, you know, new car smells and, um, you know, done any research on that? Um, I've done a little bit of research on that and the... Uh I will let you know the different automobile uh, companies and uh, industry organizations are addressing this. They are aware of it, um, and it is it is something that they they look at. There are many many test protocols for looking at VOC emissions from materials that go in vehicles into the final vehicles. Um, so. It's definitely it is it is being addressed uh, by the industry itself, and I, I do have some familiarity with it. And I think you'll notice that the new car smell is probably not as prominent as it used to be. Uh, people are going out by, now and buying air fresheners so they can have the new car smell. <laughs> you know, I was going to say. You know, I, I guess catch you know, just too. a thought that you know, it would seem that you know, in a vehicle, um, you know, because. In most parts of the country, you know, we're at least going to have summer. And in some parts of our country, it's summer uh, all year long. That you know, the sun and the heat and uh, you know, the ventilation would help burn those emissions off much faster than in a house. Um, well, that that's if you have you have to have the ventilation. Um, going at the same time you have the heat to drive it out of the vehicle. Otherwise, it just stays there. Okay. And can it um, 
be reabsorbed once it becomes volatile? I guess it can be reabsorbed into back into that or into other parts of the car. That's correct. Okay. So that's something that you may have heard of the VOC sink effect. That's with VOCs that have been emitted reabsorbing or adsorbing onto other materials in the room that weren't the original source. Okay. All right. Cliff? Um, I guess in terms of furnishings, you know, we make some furniture in the United States, probably not quite as much as we used to, you know, kitchen cabinets and the like. And some of these are also imported from, uh, you know, places like Scandinavia. You know, IKEA makes, you know, all the furnishings and uh, in Europe, I think Poland, a lot of them, and then they export it to the U.S. And then also, I guess, some cabinets and things would be made uh, in Asia and imported uh, in the United States. Um, are there more problems with imported, you know, furnishings, cabinetry, and so on and so forth than stuff made in the United States? I mean, is there a national standard that everyone has to adhere to? <laughs> uh, that's a good question. So, <laughs> we're trying to be a delicate here in the answer. Some uh, imported products are worse than others in terms of their chemical emissions, and I'm going <laughs> to leave it at that. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to make a blanket statement, but... Okay. Well, and I can imagine, too, that, you know, shipping something in a shipping container um, going across the ocean that, that's not getting any ventilation, essentially, over a long distance, that, that in itself might uh, lead to, I guess, some potential issues. Do you ever get that uh, type of work where, you know, you're on the West Coast there, you get a lot of stuff coming in right off the, right off the boat. Um, I would imagine when you open some of those containers, you get some pretty good... Uh, VOCs coming off. Yes, that, that's true, and you know, they also have to pay attention to the to the packaging material as well. Uh, cardboard, for example, can be a source of VOCs. Um, if they pack the material with in with wood framing, you know, like pine, that can contribute some VOCs. So yes, the, the <laughs> yeah, and then over the uh, it can. Uh, be uh, like a you get a plume a poof. <laughs> well, I would imagine. It was in there. Yeah. <laughs> you know what about things like um, particle board versus um, plywood? Ver you know uh, these different types of products we use now that are kind of you know some people refer to as was wood. Is um, is one worse than the other in your experience, or is it again kind of a mixed bag? Um, again, it's kind of a mixed bag, and you may be aware of the requirement in California card for formaldehyde in uh, the uh, you know, press word products or the yeah the air toxics uh, from composite wood, the ATCM uh, program, which is has requirements for lowering. Uh, formaldehyde content and emissions from uh, these wood products. So if you're going to sell um, a composite wood product in California, it needs to be labeled and 
that it was tested and verified for uh, formaldehyde, that it meets the requirements, and there's been a federal regulation passed that will take a modification of the California requirements, and it will be a uh, U.S. requirement as well. So there's recently there's been a uh, a move to decrease the formaldehyde emissions from uh, from Presswood, and even though it was originally targeted at California, you know manufacturers sell not just to one state per se. So often that trickles through the entire uh, entire supply chain. Yeah, they don't want to be shut out of California, so they just change their product to, you know, meet that requirement, and then they can sell it anywhere, I guess. But also, I'm wondering, I see that a lot, you know, formaldehyde, and you always hear about formaldehyde as a VOC and, and trying to reduce the amount of formaldehyde in pressed woods and so on and so forth, but I've always wondered... To reduce the formaldehyde, I'm assuming you have to add something else. And do we really know that the something else we're adding is any better than the formaldehyde? And, and why did the formaldehyde become such a target in the first place from your experience? Uh, so, <clears throat> let's see, we'll start with the formaldehyde. The formaldehyde was, it's always been recognized as, you know, a, an irritant, eye irritant, sensory irritant at a, uh, higher concentrations. The World Health Organization recommends uh, indoor air uh, concentrations for formaldehyde be uh, 100 uh, ppb or 0.1 ppm or, or lower. And but more recently, within the last, I think it was five years, formaldehyde was listed as a known carcinogen. Um, by the by IARC, the International Agency um, on Research on Chemicals, and since that time, <laughs> it's there's been more focus on on formaldehyde. Um, there's also been work that's you know done in California on the non-cancer effects of formaldehyde, which indicate the acceptable concentrations um, in indoor air should be no higher than uh, 9 microgram per cubic meter. <laughs> so it, it's just, formaldehyde is probably the most common uh, VOC that you'll find inside buildings, and that's probably one of the reasons it's been so targeted, in addition to the fact that it was um, recently labeled as a uh, carcinogen. I see. Um, as far as the alternates, it really depends on the alter alternatives that's used. Um, again, don't necessarily want to make a blanket statement. Um, as far as emissions into uh, the indoor air, they, for the most part, appear to be improved. But again, that's a general statement, and uh, I don't know that I don't have the information <laughs> to say that absolutely. Uh, there's been no, there'll be no detrimental effect in, in the long run. But it's, it's not just the particle board that's made the move to reduce or remove the use of formaldehyde. You'll, you see that in um, the insulation industry, uh, the use of formaldehyde as a biocide. It's much less prevalent than it used to be. So uh, in many different materials, the use of formaldehyde is uh, 
being uh, deleted and you know re- either just not used at all. They're finding other processes without uh, that don't need uh, different chemicals, or they're replacing them with, with other compounds. And have these different chemicals been evaluated the same way formaldehyde has been evaluated? Uh, again, I I don't feel comfortable answering that. I'm not as familiar with all of the new chemistries okay. uh, to be able to make that statement. Fair enough. Uh, I, I believe there is some you know due diligence on the part of the manufacturers to to avoid replacing one bad chemical with another. Sure. Um, when so I don't think there's any. In, well, let's say there's probably limited replacement with another known problem chemical. Okay, and it's a known. Uh, we've got a text from a listener. It's a known sensitizer according to ATSDE, ATSDR, and I know Doctor Wow will agree with that when we bring him on. He's had some formaldehyde issues over the years. Cliff, I know you have a follow up. Go ahead. Yeah, I do, um, Doctor. I suppose that you you know you said that you moved to California. And I really have some questions. You live and work in California, and I think California is unique in a number of ways. You have high population. You have these air inversions. You end up having a lot of smog and so on and so forth. Can you first opine on the suitability of California's regulations regarding VOCs, you know, for the balance of the United States? And second part of the question uh, have California's VOCs regulations resulted in any noticeable improvement? Okay, so in this case, I think you're—I believe you're referring to the VOC uh, content limits, uh, particularly imposed by uh, SquawkMed and some of the other air districts. So SquawkMed is a Southern California Air Quality Management District. Um, that's where it started, the Los Angeles area. Um, <laughs> looking at minimizing. Uh, VOC uh, content in the wet products, paints, adhesives to minimize uh, the release of what we call them reactive organic compounds, which is a subset of VOCs, compounds that are photochemically reactive and would generate uh, smog. And yeah, I think it's safe to say that you know they're, the steps they've taken have led to, if not an improvement, then a reduction in the rate at which things were uh, becoming worse. Uh, whether they're relevant for the entire country, mm, some of the changes that you can make to chemistries for application in the Los Angeles area because of the temperature, um, the climate, may not work in an area like Minnesota where you have, where it freezes, so chemicals that you might introduce because of freeze-thaw cycles, you don't need them in California. Um, would it hurt to be able to reduce the VOC emissions? Um, probably not, <laughs> to take them across uh, around the globe. And I think to a large extent that's, again, what happens. If you have to make a change for California, you wind up, you know, trying to avoid, if possible, having different formulations uh, for different parts of the country. Though that still does does happen. So often if a change is made for California, it will be implemented, you know, uh, across, the, across the whole product line, where the whole product de- 
regardless of where it's being delivered, if they can do that and meet the uh, the demands for the, the specific climates. You know, I I want to go to the roundup in a moment, but before we do, I have another that that just brought up a question in my mind. Now, you test products for emissions, and and we're looking at the emissions of volatile organic compounds in this case, but. I'm wondering if when we change from one product to another to reduce the VOCs, how that affects the durability of the product and whether maybe in the life cycle analysis of the product we're in the long run actually emitting more VOCs because we're, we've got to replace the product more, more often or something like that. Is that a part of the testing protocol currently that you're involved with, or is that something that I'm sure they've thought about that and that there's been discussion of that, but I just wonder if you could comment on that topic. Yeah, that's, uh, that gets to the, uh, the whole, you know, looking at the product from a larger life cycle perspective as opposed to just the uh, VOC emissions, and I know that, you know, early on, uh, low-emitting paints weren't very durable. Um, and they did need to be replaced more often, which potentially could lead to higher VOC emissions to the atmosphere over you know, longer time periods. Um, as a whole, I don't think there's a blanket answer to your question. I think we just do the, the VOC testing, but then, you know, the manufacturers for the different products have a number of other tests that they, uh, they perform on their products, and it's they make the decision then on whether it's acceptable or, or, or not uh, for these other compounds. So if you start looking at something like an environmental product declaration or EPDs or life cycle analysis, uh, it would be a component in there. Uh, for, like I said, we're just looking at the the VOC uh, emissions themselves. Yeah, and the manufacturer obviously has a big stake in in the answers to those questions, you know, but on the, you know, sometimes I wonder if it's not a negative, uh, well, I don't know, I shouldn't say negative, if it's not um, somewhat desirable for the product to break down more quickly because you sell new product more often. But on the other hand, then you get a bad reputation for your product breaking down. And I assume they, you know, they've got people a lot smarter than me working on these things. So uh, it's just one of the, it's just a question that came to my mind while we were discussing it. I, this has been a great great discussion. Do you have another five, ten minutes? We, we're going to bring Dr. Wow on. Yeah, I did. That'd be fine. Great. Thank you. Let's bring Dr. Dietrich Wow on and go to our roundup. Move him on, hit him up, hit him up. Move him on, move him on, hit him up. Raw high. Cut him out, ride him in, ride him in, let him out, cut him out. Ride him in, raw Let's bring the good doctor in here, Jason. All right, hello, Dieter. Do we have you on the line? 
Yes, you do. This music I recognize. The other one I did not. It doesn't matter. <laughs> I have a feeling you, you've got a couple comments. Uh, Cliff has seated. Oh, my God, do I have comments. <laughs> uh, first of all, did we get an answer to the uh, the, 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 the daily, uh, the weekly question? The trivia question, Cliff? Uh, yes, no. No, oh. Wow. We did not. I'm surprised. We did not. If you want to go for it. Well, I I do seem to remember we have megatons of moles, megatons of bacteria, megatons of organic material, which is decaying in this world. I would say biogenic ones produce more VOCs than our lousy cars. Hmm. Um, actually... Um, cars was what we were looking for, but, um, I don't disagree with you. <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure. I, I didn't look it up. I just re seem to remember that. But anyway, uh, yeah, if uh, we are, I don't know how many millions, billions of gallons of fuel we are burning every day for that matter. Uh, it's unbelievable. Anyway, I have a, a couple of, of questions and comments. I do agree with Dr. Mason 100%. These air fresheners, just I, I, somebody may kill me, just throw them out. You don't need them. It's almost like using an anesthetic. It takes the pain away. It doesn't do anything to the healing process or something like that. So therefore, I don't do that. And Dr. Mason mentioned also something uh, that is quite interesting. Uh, that the human nose may perceive an order, uh, order for some time, and then all of a sudden it goes away, even though the concentration of that compound, which we were smelling, is still there. It's called a normand. You get accustomed to it, and then all of a sudden you don't uh, uh, recognize it anymore. We mentioned H2S. Uh, that is one of the compounds which will do it, but there are many other, many other ones. What was that term again, Dieter? What was the term you used? A Normand? A Normand. A Normand is getting accustomed involuntarily. It has a somewhat bad connotation. Got it. It's not a good connotation. I'm sure Cliff will pick that up in his uh, so, And I have another question later on on the chamber testing. Just two more comments. When I was at University of Pittsburgh, we tested carpets for emissions and worked with the Carpet Institute to reformulate and get rid of uh, things which were actually relatively easy to do. And the carpets, carpets after they are woven have a backing that they don't snare out. In other words, there is the glue on the back. Now, I'm, well, uh, I'm quite familiar. We used, when I worked for Bayer, we used polyurethanes. And uh, there are many other uh, compounds available for that. And they were the culprit. They changed the formulation, and we took care of most of uh, uh, the problems. Also at the University of Pittsburgh was the uh, 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 tests that were done on formaldehyde, which lowered the uh, concentration which OSHA had been using for many, many years. I think it was 3 ppm, which is much too high. And as I think it is now 0.3 ppm, I didn't look it up, but that was based on research of a couple of students in uh, my department. That's interesting. Um, the, up, uh, the, the one question that really bothers me, and I, I, I saw chamber testing, 
and I know there are hundreds and thousands of uh, uh, VOCs in this uh, world. How, what kind of testing are you doing with VOCs? Okay, so typically we uh, we do two. Uh, we collect two different uh, samples from the from the air that comes out of the chamber with the with the product. Uh, one is you let it off gas in an enclosed uh, a chamber. Yeah. So what we do is we have a an inert chamber. Uh, think of it as a a large metal bread box. Okay. Very simple. Uh, we put clean air, clean uh, air that's controlled for temperature and relative humidity and the rate of the airflow through the chamber. We check the chamber to confirm that it doesn't, uh, there are no VOCs that it contributes, that it's not a VOC sink, that it's well mixed, um, that okay. we're controlling the air change rate. So we have a controlled environment, which I think of it as you know, a, a mini house, so we use 23 degrees C and 50% relative humidity. That's so fine, uh, yeah. And so we'll load the product in. So let's say it's a piece of flooring. We'll put the product in the chamber so that only the top surface is exposed, as it would be inside in your home in, on, on a floor. And the amount, the area of the floor material, the ratio of that area to the volume of the chamber, we try to mimic a typical room environment. So our ratio is typically uh, 0.4 meters squared per meters cube, um, which is, if you look at some of the uh, reference standards that are out there in the, the U.S. and the EU for the room sizes that they use to model the results to yep. predict room, that's what it is. So we try and mimic the building to the extent possible inside the chamber. Okay, so you are... You're basically, you put the material into a, a, a controlled environment, you close the door, uh, you let it sit there for whatever, 24 hours, 48 hours, I don't care, and then you take a chemical sample from it. Correct. Oh, okay. So you use gas chromatography, uh, mass spec? So we do two samples. One is for gas chromatography, mass spectrometry, and the second one that we do is uh, an HPLC uh, UV analysis for the formaldehyde and acid aldehyde and you know, low molecular weight uh, yeah. aldehyde. Yeah, the only, I, the, the, the one big problem that I see is if you get an unknown sample of some treated uh, wood or carpet or I don't care what it is, <laughs> you still may get hundreds and hundreds or a large amount or a large number of chemicals, it's tough. I mean, it's not tough. You can analyze for all of them. The big question I have then, okay, I know formaldehyde, and we know quite a bit about formaldehyde, but there are others, a hundred other ones. Uh, how do, uh, do we know how to determine it? Do we have a total a VOC that we say, okay, the total is this and this, but here are a couple of bad actors which we can uh, identify. So in, in the United States, there's a program called, um, well, it used to be known as the California 1350 
protocol for measuring emissions from building products. Okay. Uh, now the CDPH program. Uh, and in that program, there are a list of volatile organic compounds that California EPA has determined a chronic reference exposure level for. Okay. So we have a list of target compounds. Right. That, and so we specifically calibrate our instruments for those compounds. So that's our target list. And some other, the EU has different lists and we can calibrate for, for those as well. So we have the target list, but then we also look for the, we call them TIFs, the tentatively identified compounds. And we, we uh, make an assessment uh, based on uh, comparison with the NIST library, uh, look at the retention time, the, and the mass spectra to make an assessment of what that compound identity is. Okay. Yeah, this, uh, uh, I have no problem with that target list. I mean, we can't measure, I mean, we can measure everything, but what does it mean? The only problem that I have, if we have, quote, a new material, and there is a bad actor, a bad culprit in there, which is not on the target list. He may, <laughs> we may, we may um, uh, not uh, measure it. But anyway, uh, I have another problem with California. Literally, every product that is made and sent to California has a sticker on it. It will contain a carcinogen. Every computer, every telephone, every cell phone, and I'm sure there are millions, if not billions, of those over there. Uh, to me, that doesn't. I was in California, and there is a sign on the floor on which my room was in a hotel. Said this was once a smoking room 25 years ago. Carcinogens hanging around. Now, what the heck am I supposed to do with my room? Uh, sleep with a respirator. So, in other words, that is, I think, times stupid, um, stupid labeling. <laughs> and, uh, <laughs> Yeah, I think you're referring to the California Prop 60, Proposition 65 program. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> well, yes. It reminds me of uh, one of my co-workers when I worked for the Bayer Chemical Corporation. This is 40 years ago when we had to go into labeling, and I'm 100% for good labeling. There's no doubt in my mind about it. And he said, why don't we bother with all of this stuff? On every drum that goes out the, uh, the, the factory, out of the plant, we just put on a skull and crossbones on it, and then everybody knows. Well, if you, <laughs> if you label distilled water that way, <laughs> sooner or later, whether you label it that way or not, it's useless because people said, oh, there's a skull and crossbones, but I had a drum that was nothing in it. So uh, that doesn't make sense. But I, every time I look at that, I kind of laugh a little bit. Okay, so I'm going to make a couple of comments on what you said. Uh, so the first on, on the labeling uh, that, you know, this product may contain carcinogens or the room, uh, the building may contain carcinogens. Uh, I do know that the, the California EPA, uh, the Office of Environmental Health Hazard Assessment, OEHA, is looking now at revising the California Proposition 65 um, and I'm not going to go into details, but they are looking to create 
revamped the program so that not everything gets labeled. They want it to be more meaningful. I think they do recognize uh, that there is over-labeling at this point, and it just inures people to it. Okay, it almost becomes, becomes meaningless at that point. So, yeah. but there, there is a move. To, there is a move to change that. Uh, whether it's successful or not, I don't know. But there is a recognition for that. Uh, well, it's tough to fight uh, city hall, right? But that's okay. Oh. I have no problem with it. I still I can make fun of it. Okay. Uh, so that is all right, and <laughs> I'm allowed to do that. Oh, and yeah. I have a couple of other things well, over here, but it's uh, 12 minutes past okay. uh, the hour. Well, Dr. So Mason, we real, real quick. quit over here, and uh, unless. Dieter, uh, Joe I think, or, Dieter, I think uh, she has one more comment. On that. Go ahead, yeah. go ahead, Dr. Mason. One of uh, the good doctor's uh, comments, uh, even if we don't have some more time. Please do. <laughs> would, would that be okay? No, please do. Yeah, so uh, you had mentioned the, you know, the, it's a, the target list of chemicals is limited and you know, what if you have a chemical that's bad and not there? So there are there is an effort on the way um, to update that California uh, 1350 standard, uh, not through California, um, through an, an anti-consensus process um, to to update the standard and revamp that list of list of chemicals to to add some additional uh, the compounds that. Or you know, emit or may emit from products uh, that are bad actors as well. So it, it is under some type of continuous maintenance uh, program. Well, which is fine. I have no problem with that. On the contrary, I like it. Yeah, we have, once in a while you ought to look at your mistakes and say, well, <laughs> maybe that wasn't such a good idea. Uh, anyway, are you aware of any animal testings? which could be done to assess the potency, the irritation of VOCs? From a sensory... Uh, sensory irritation, yes. Th yes, there are. <laughs> um, there, there are many. Um, and there are other... Uh, programs and listings that, that use that right now. Uh, for example, is something called the green screen uh, for alternative assessment, and they consider uh, sensory irritation. So they look at the uh, existing literature uh, on sensory irritation, and that, you know, it grows all the time. <laughs> oh, good. Well, the, 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 the idea that is behind it, if I have a gas chromatograph with a... a um, a mass spectrometer behind it. I, uh, you know, I, I can do a lot of things with that. The only thing is what I cannot do is I can't say I got a, I identified a thousand uh, compounds <laughs> and 999 of them, I don't know what they are. <laughs> Molecule of formaldehyde snuck in somewhere. No, I'm kidding. Uh, I don't know what they did. And here I have this whole list and people are complaining, which one is it? Now, if I could assess that with a model where a model integrates all the responses through the nose, through the tongue, through the inhalation, there are receptors in our lung, in our nasal passages, and 
uh, I knows and throat, wherever, uh, I think that would give me a good starting point. Hey, material A is more uh, um, uh, um, irritating than material B, C, and D. We don't really know what it is, but there is something in there which is not good. Maybe we reformulate it. Maybe we talk to the manufacturer, and maybe we can change something and make it less irritating. I think that's a great idea. When are you going to start? <laughs> well, I'm a bit facetious. We started that 30 years ago, but that is all right. Maybe and uh, I gladly talk to you at another time about this. But uh, I, I, I think there are uh, models available for doing just that. And I think it's a wonderful starting point. I'm not saying that it solves all the problems. Of course not. But it solves a, a bunch of them. But that will be uh, at a later date, okay? Okay. It also takes <laughs> no, re- research right. money. you got to have research money, dear. And I think that's why you got to... It, it does not out. come cheap. That is correct. Well, that ran oh. out for you, didn't it? I know you were doing this stuff 30, 40 years ago, but I assume that is correct. part of the problem is the research money ran out. Uh, that is right, yes. Okay. All right. Well, hey... Thank you so much, both of you. Uh, This is Radio Joe Hughes saying thanks very much to our guest this week, Dr. Stephanie Mason. I knew this would go well when I talked to you at IAQA, and it did. Um, Thanks for joining us. You're welcome. Thanks for having me on. And for taking. Thank you all. And good meeting you, uh, Dr. Mason. Good meeting you as well. All right. And thanks to our technical director, Dr. Dietrich Wow. Of course, to my co host, the Z Man, Cliff. Great job. Always fun, Joe. Good time. Uh, to Jesse Lawson, Jessica at the controls. Good job. No glitches today. Looking good. We're getting uh, we're, we're getting better at this after 325 shows. Uh, Jess has only been here the last 25 or so. Not even that, probably. Um, and, of course, thanks to our growing group of loyal listeners. By the way, thanks for staying on the whole show there. I noticed we had a nice group of people who stuck around, and I know we went over about 15 minutes, but it was good information. I want to thank you all for joining us this week and come back next Friday at noon for the next broadcast of IAQ Radio.